Amen. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Uh, it is uh, a joy to be with you this morning, as it's always a joy to be with uh, God's people. And it is especially a joy to be with you this morning, to be sharing with you from God's Word. I'm just so grateful to be with my church family, as my family has been traveling on vacation and over the past couple of weeks. So it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, just to share a little something with you about myself uh, I love to stargaze. Now, I know that might be a little nerdy for some people, but I just, I love to stargaze. I love to go outside in the night sky and to just look up at the stars and to look up at the moon and just to see and to consider the many planets and stars and galaxies that are, that are beyond our own. And I'm just always mesmerized by that. And, and in doing so, I'm often prompted to consider Psalm 19.1 that states, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. However, for many of you who, like myself, live in the city, you know that sometimes that can be a little difficult because of light pollution and whatnot, uh, because you go outside and you don't have the clarity that you do uh, otherwise. Now, on my last trip to Africa, my, uh, myself, Eric, and Brian on the last night that we were there, uh, we drove out four hours plus into the desert. One of the most literally remote places I've ever been to in my life. It was so far out that you just cannot imagine. And as we were there and as we were teaching, beginning in the evening and going literally into the wee hours of the morning, I was able for the first time in my life to ever see the stars and to see the Milky Way galaxy and the arms of it go from one horizon all the way over to the other horizon as the hours went on throughout the night. Well, you know, it was just an amazing experience and something that I will absolutely never forget. But the simple point of this illustration is the fact that the light shines the brightest against the darker the backdrop. And I think that's very analogous to the text that we have before us today. Because if you consider, the, since chapter 4, we've been talking about walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And even at the beginning of last week, and beginning of chapter 5, we hear that we are to walk in love. And so we see Paul exhorting us as the church that our actions would match our identity. And he wants the church then and the church now to shine as bright as those nighttime stars did in Africa. He wants us to shine as bright as we possibly can against this back dark drop that is our current culture. But specifically, how can we do this? How can we as individuals and as the church collectively shine bright in the world that is so dark? Well, in the text today, Paul gives us some instruction on that. And he's going to show us how we can do that as he speaks to three areas, two areas with one exhortation. Number one, in purity in our internal desires. And then number two, in the purity of our external expressions. And then finally, Paul tells us of a final warning for those consequences of failing to do so. So, let's dig into the text here this morning. So the first imperative that we see Paul give here in our text today is the purity concerning our internal desires. Two specific areas Paul speaks to here are in sexual relations and in covetousness. 
verse 3, Paul states, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is pure among the saints. So sexual immorality, pornea is the Greek word, which is where we get the word pornography. Pornography is a compound word of pornea graphe, to write about sex sin. And this is, uh, pornea is all illicit sex in general that's consisting of any sexual intercourse that's outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Whether practiced in the act of adultery, heathen festival, homosexual relations, it was all considered sexual immorality, pornea. So you may wonder, you know, why Paul, as he is speaking to the church here at Ephesus, you know, why of all the sins does Paul address these when he's talking about walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling? Well, in regards to sexual morality, there's really three reasons why Paul states this. Number one, as the early church was being formed and as the church was growing, there were Gentiles that were being brought into God's church. And as these Gentiles were being brought into the church and were being saved, there were some people who came along called the Judaizers. The Judaizers came along and they were telling the Gentile believers there, they were telling them that you had to first become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And so Judaism and going through the Mosaic Law was somewhat of a screen door into Christianity and to be ultimately saved. Well, this is one of the first real doctrinal issues that the church had to deal with concerning you know, doctrinal issues within the church. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? Thus, the elders and the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem gathered together to have the Jerusalem Council. And in that council, they declared a statement about what they believe about this idea that you've got to be circumcised first before you can become a Christian. You've got to go through the Mosaic Law before you can become a Christian. I'm going to read to you what, this, uh, what their doctrinal statement is. And so they decided to write a letter to these Gentile believers. And in Acts 15, we read, this is what they say, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Cilicius who themselves will tell you will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these requirements. And here's the requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So you have to wonder, you know, why when dealing with matters of soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, what does it mean to be saved? Does the church there in Jerusalem talk about sexual morality? Why does Paul talk about it here in Ephesians? Well, to understand this context you know, of that day, we need to understand that for these Gentiles who were being saved, many of them were being saved out of a religion in which sex 
was an act of worship. You know, for many of them, they were partakers of temple prostitutes. Sex was such an integral part of their religion that temple prostitutes were provided so that they could exercise and commune with the gods. This was the context in which many of those who were saved came out of. And so they tied worship with that. And Paul and the Jerusalem council is correcting this error and explaining to them that these activities are not in line with what God's word says and with what God's requirements are. And oftentimes, these were accompanied with drunkenness of some sort. And so these new believers to the Christian faith needed to be very clear, needed to be very clearly spoken to them what God's word clearly teaches and what his standards are. And so that's why Paul deals with it here in the Jerusalem Council then. So that's reason number one. They're coming from a context of where sexual morality was the common practice among their religion. Reason number two. Reason number two that Paul speaks of it here is it wasn't always some sort of form of sick, twisted worship. Sometimes it's just plain lust and licentiousness. Sometimes it's just a matter of our fallen flesh that wages war with our hearts. You know, James 1.14 states this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so you got these people that are coming from this context. They're dealing with this struggle. And their fallen flesh is fighting against these internal desires. And if not dealt with, it will result in death. And then if you think back to Paul's letter to the Corinthians there in Corinth, Paul writes to those there in Corinth in 5.12 or 5.1-2. He states, It is actually reported there that there is sexual morality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So let me break this down for you. These people, these people there in Corinth, within the church in Corinth, there were young men who were having sex with their stepmothers. That's pretty sick. <laughs> it's pretty twisted. Yet, that's what was going on there. And so you can see that even there were people there who were had come to the saving faith and had come from such a background of sexual immorality that they couldn't even distinguish between that, what was right and what was wrong. And so this was waging war within their hearts. And so you see that our fallen flesh deals with this. Reason number three that Paul commands this to believers is that it is simply where so many people fall. If you think about it, just starting in your own life and reflecting on your own sexual immorality and consider where you have fallen temptation of this as we all have. Consider as you step out from that people that are closest to you, friends and family who have fallen prey to this, even pastors. How many pastors do we know who have fallen into this? And it's reported. And then as you go out from there you have so many people in the news you read about, you hear about so many instances of sexual morality that is taking place in our culture today. It is absolutely everywhere. Thus, so often in Scripture we see the God's Word is telling us 
to repent of this. Romans 13, 13, Paul states, Let us walk properly as is in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Galatians 5.19 Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. Colossians 3.5 states this, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So many people have fallen prey to this because it is waging war within us. John Owen states that we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so we must be waging war against this sin. Now, today we live in in such a culture that sexual morality is crammed down our throats from any and every angle. When we are in the time of most technological advancement in the history of mankind, we are more sexually immoral than we have ever been. Have we not? From the TV to the internet, we are bombarded from every angle with these temptations. And so it is imperative, dear friends, that we fight this fight, that we fight this war within us. Now, that's Paul's day. And thinking about Paul's day and reading through those letters... But let's consider ours for just a moment and compare it to Paul's day. The sexual depravity that we see in our culture, it's evidence of something. It is evidence of a culture and a society that is currently living under the wrath of God. Now what I mean by that, I'm not talking about God's cataclysmic wrath. I'm not talking about God's eschatological wrath that will take place as he returns. No, I'm talking about God's wrath of abandonment. Now, what does that mean? God's wrath of abandonment is when God has had his hand of blessing on a society and a culture and a people, and yet that people pushes God's hand away and says, we don't want you, we don't need you. And though that may be God's common grace, people push it away and God says, okay. And he pulls his hand back and he allows that culture and that society to face the consequences of their actions. Romans 1 gives us a clear picture of this. And so let's see how this happens. If you would, turn with me to Romans 1, please. And we're going to see a downward spiral of a culture and a society that is living underneath the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin with verse 18, then we'll go back to Ephesians. Verse 18, Paul states this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, as you see a downward spiral, a domino effect of a society that is living underneath the wrath of God, the first thing that happens is the suppression of God's truth. Now, in our society, we have seen that the authenticity, the authority, and the trustworthiness of God's word has been called into question over and over and over again. From every Nat Geo episode 
that you see on television to even people within the church who question this. They want to explain away what God's word clearly teaches and says. And so what happens is, is there is a suppression of God's word. And to suppress it, many will try to prove that it is wrong. They will try to uh, show that there is you know, contradictions in it, whatever have you. But there's an attempt there ultimately to simply take what God's word says is true and then there is a rebuttal from them that it is not true. And so they, dep- they suppress it. The second thing that you see in a culture that is spiraling out of control is that there is a denial of God in choosing to worship the creation rather than the creator. Verse 21, Paul states there in Romans chapter 1, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Is this not a commentary on our society? Is this not? I mean, though we don't have statues of birds and things that we, many people worship, but yet, at the same time, do we not see in our culture a denial of God as the first cause of all creation? There is a continual denial that God is the creator. And rather, we see within our culture that is taught of evolution and that over billions and billions of years, these things keep happening. It's a simple equation. One plus one equals two. And what happens is, is you see the removal of a crucial part of the equation. And they can't fit the equation, can't make it work. And so what happens is, is you keep having to add things to it. You, can't ha- you keep having to add things to it. And so with that, you see a denial of God as the first cause of all creation. You know, this is when every piece of evidence points to God as the creator, people suppress it. They deny the existence of God. We see this happening in our society. And so as this thing starts spiraling out of control, you see the next thing, which is relevant to today. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Hence, venereal diseases and whatnot. Need I say more? This is the society that we live in right now. In the last 10 years in our culture, we have experienced and seen a homosexual revolution that this society has yet to see. Yes, I know that there are different periods of history of mankind when this has taken place, but in our culture and in our context, we have not seen this. We've not seen this, but yet we are seeing it happen before our very eyes. And what was once on the fringe of society and considered an alternative lifestyle is actually considered and propagated as the norm now. But as these things start spiraling out of control, you see the suppression of the truth. You see the denial and existence of God. You see this sexual and homosexual revolution that takes place. And then finally, you see a non-functioning mind. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
and gave and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is a mind that does not function. This is a mind that cannot tell up from down, left from right, right from wrong, and dare I say, male from female. This is what we're seeing, folks. Isaiah 5.20 states, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We have seen this in our society. We have seen this shift and this flip of where evil is called good and good is called evil. And it's not only accepted, it's celebrated. Verse 31, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And as these things take place and as our society spirals out of control and it just continues to degenerate, Paul tells us here in Romans that we will be filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Our society will be a society that is full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. People will gossip, people will slander, people will be haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Is this not our current culture? Please think about this. This is the culture that we live in right now. This is our society. This church is our backdrop. This is our backdrop. Now, I want to be clear about this. Our, the point here is not to focus and to exegete our culture and our society. I don't want to miss that point here in Ephesians because our point here in Ephesians is to, as the church, we are to shine bright. We are to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. We are to be in contrast to the society that is around us. That's what we are to be, folks. As the church, that is what we are to be. Unfortunately, so many of us don't do that. We live more like the culture than we do as the church. And that's sad. However, just understanding, dear folks, that we are to shine bright in thinking about what Paul tells the Ephesians and the Corinthians and so forth. Let's, let's look at this. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul writes this. He says, Or you don't know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to this in verse 11. In such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The simple point here that Paul is telling these Corinthians and the fact that we should get this is that there were people there in Corinth who were sexually immoral, who God had saved. There were people who were formerly homosexuals that God saved. But he is telling them, and by extension, he is telling us to shine bright. He is telling us to, be, to not live like that, that our lives should match our identity. And that... This backdrop that is behind us, it is not outside of God's saving power. But it is vitally important that we as the church shine bright and be a contrasting light in the backdrop, back, back, backdrop that is behind us. 
However, these people, this dark backdrop, they need someone to share the gospel with them. They need someone to live the gospel out so that they may see the light. And so we, may we be sexually pure in every aspect of our lives, from what we watch on television to what we look up on the internet, to all the clothes that we wear. Every aspect of our lives, should, there should be purity in that. May we, as Jesus said, not lust for others in our heart, because in doing so, we commit adultery already. And we must understand that this purity in this internal desire, it's, it is it's God's will for your life. You know, so many people want to know, well, what's God's will for my life? What's his will for my life? I want to tell you what God's will for, his, for your life is. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will for your life right now. You know, in a society that, where sexual morality is propagated, promoted, and celebrated, we have an opportunity to be a powerful witness by being that counter-cultural people, by not partaking in our society's wickedness, dear friends. But instead, may we shine bright. Now, let's not gloss over everything else here. You know, Paul also speaks of another internal desire in our text today, covetousness. You know, this should not be any news to us. You know, thou shalt not covet made God's top ten list of things to not do. You know, yet in our culture of abundance and access and plenty, you know, we look at so many people with a bigger house, the nicer car, the nicer things, the nicer wife, the mom who has it all together. We covet, and this is glossed over without a second thought. You know, from within us, we want what other people have. We want this. James 4, 2 states this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Do you desire and you do not have? So you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain? So you fight and you quarrel? Now think about this. When we, the church, covet, what do we do? What do we do? What message do we send to the world that is around us? Just consider that. When we do that, we communicate that God has not provided for us. When we covet, that's what we communicate. We communicate that God is not enough. We communicate that God is not trustworthy. We communicate that, that God has not done anything in my life worth mentioning because I'm so focused on what I don't have. That's what we are communicating. And we are communicating a false representation of the God who saved us and the God who cares for us and the God who provides for us. In coveting, we don't reflect the character and nature of God. We blur it. And dare I say, we blaspheme it. In a society that is so consumed with consumerism and where it is communicated and marketed in almost every aspect of our lives that you do not have enough and that you need more when that's the context that we live in that's the backdrop we have an opportunity to be a powerful witness we have an opportunity to be a powerful witness by simply saying Jesus is enough I'm content with Jesus 
Paul says that these things, that sexual immorality, that covetousness, must not even be named among us. And as I stated earlier, unfortunately, so many of us, dear friends, and I'm as guilty as anyone, we fall prey to these things and we live more like the world than as ambassadors for Christ. May we repent of these things. You know, so let's shift for just a moment from those internal desires and now let's look at external expressions. External expressions. The next imperative that we see here is in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So, once again, we may ask why of all the things that Paul could speak of when he's talking about walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling and walking in love, does Paul highlight our speech and our talk? Now, I think we know that um, taming the tongue can be one of the hardest things that we can do as Christians. You know, there's so many vices that we can you know, stop doing, but this is, this is a tough one. But the Bible is so comprehensive in this. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 17, 27 through 28, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool keeps silent. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips. He is deemed intelligent. Proverbs eleven nineteen. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. However, as wonderful these verses are, James gives us some of the best commentary on the tongue, does he not? James 1, 26, he states, if any man thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And as you read on in James 3, 2 through 10, we read about taming the tongue and how Justin talked about this just a couple weeks ago and how it can set aflame entire forests, just such a small thing, and how much damage the tongue can do. What comes out of our mouth reveals ultimately what is in our hearts. Jesus states that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And our internal desires ultimately, friends, will come out as external expressions. So therefore I ask, what's on your lips? Or rather, what's in your heart? And just like sexual immorality, this sin of taming our tongue... And failing to do so is, is a sin that so many of us fall prey to. So many of us do not guard our hearts and guard our lips and filter them with God's word. But here specifically, Paul speaks of filthiness in our talk. And filthiness uh, has to do with general obscenity. And any talk that is degrading and disgraceful. And out of this filthy talk, which is a general word, there are two types of speech that Paul speaks of. Foolish talk and crude joking. Foolish talk is a, is a compound word itself, which is made up of moros and logia. Moros is where we get the word moron from. Logia is where we get the word word from. Thus, moron word or stupid talk. It equates to that. 
but this has no forethought or point or wisdom. It can be described as pointless rambling of worldliness. And this is, I'm reading from a lexicon here. Do I dare bring up Facebook right now? <laughs> Think of how many people just simply spout out things without even considering and having a forethought of what they're talking about. Did I bring up those debates that we get into with so many where we don't think through and have a forethought of what we're going to say? This is this kind of foolish talk. It's moron word. It's stupid talk. And then Paul speaks of crude joking. And where foolish talk has no point or forethought, crude joking does. Crude joking is more pointed and determined. And it carries the idea of turning quickly something that is said or done into something that which is obscene or suggestive. You know, Aristotle calls it chastened insolence. And it's the sense, uh, the sense of the word here is polished and witty speech as the instrument of sin. Sometimes it's lodged in a sly question or a smart aleck answer. Sometimes it's found in a lusty or startling hyperbole. And so another example of this crude joking would be sexual innuendo. This is not to be named among us. This is not how we as Christians should be marked. Yet, so many of us use filthiness in our language in everyday talk without a second thought in everyday circumstances without any regard to what God's word clearly tells us here. This is clear. How, you know, how many of us have ruined our witness? How many of us have ruined our witness and lost our integrity when what comes out of our mouth does not match what we proclaim in Christ? We do this, we blur God's glory in our lives. And we see nothing wrong with this. We see nothing wrong with having a good time at the expense of our integrity and our witness before God. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent of this. This is not how we should be marked. This is not how we should be labeled. This is not how we should be identified. This is not how we should be. However, thankfully, God's word is, gives us clarity on how we should talk. And how we should talk should be with gentleness. There should be a soberness amongst us. We, are, we as the church, we are dealing with matters of eternal significance. So yes, it is, it is fine to, to laugh. It is good to laugh. Laughter is a gift from God. Yet, there should be a soberness about us and a seriousness about us because we are daily dealing with matters of eternity. We are daily dealing with matters that are of eternal significance because there are so many who have yet to hear the gospel. There are people who are going to hell. And we, dear friends, we should have a seriousness about us. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. And so when our words are filled with our, with foolishness and filthy talk, we ruin this witness. But when our words are void of this and they're filled with, with gentleness and kindness and love and truth and soberness and the gospel, ultimately, 
that's when we reflect God's character. That's when we reflect God's nature. That's the negative as far as what we should not do. Thankfully, God's word doesn't leave us hanging there. He tells us what we should do too. He says this, that we should instead be giving thanks. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving among you. Many Christians, including myself, we struggle with joy. You know, we can struggle with this contentment. We can struggle with, with this joy that we should be possessing as Christians. And I think for that, for many of us in those cases, that there is a, a lack of thankfulness. There's a lack of gratitude to God for what he's done for us. Now, I've heard it said that joy is the fruit of a, of a thankful heart, and I would agree with that. And as Christians, we have more to be grateful for and to thankful for than anybody else on the face of this planet. Anybody else. You know, each night at our dinner table to cultivate uh, Thanksgiving, we, we try to share a psalm of Thanksgiving. And each night at the dinner table before we have our dinner, we, we try to read a psalm of Thanksgiving, the same one every day. So we have a specific verse on Sunday and a specific verse on Monday and so forth. And so like on Sunday, we read Psalm 717, I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks is due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. And then on Monday, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and will recount all his wonderful deeds, Psalm 9-1. And so in doing so, we're trying to cultivate this thankfulness. It's within our own family because this is how we should be identified. And so because in being thankful, dear friends, in a society around us, and when we're thankful, we acknowledge our dependence upon God. And we are totally, when we are totally and completely dependent upon God and we communicate this to the world, what are we communicating to them beyond that? What are we communicating about God's character? We're communicating that God's trustworthy. When we say, thank you, God, for what you've given me. Thank you for your blessings upon me this day. Whatever that may be, when we express that to the people around us, they can see that we're dependent upon God. And that's a good thing because God is good and loving and kind and he provides for us. But if God were not good and kind and loving, yet we were dependent upon him, that'd be a terrifying thing. And so when we are thankful, and when thanks and praise is on our lips, rather than words of filthiness and crude joking, when we do that, we communicate God's character. We tell the world that God is trustworthy, that God provides, that God's the sovereign over my life, and I'm grateful for it. That's what we communicate to the world. But when we fail to do so, we give a faulty view of his character. And that's unfortunate. But think about it. Thankfulness is the opposite of covetousness. And when we are be giving God thanks, we are going to be turning from this and going towards that. We are repenting. So may we have thanksgiving on our hearts and on our lips. You know, my kids, uh, when they come to me, uh, all kids are, you know, they fail, they sin, as we all do, right? But there's one sin that really tears me up. When uh, my children are ungrateful and, are, and feel entitled, that's one thing that just that puts me into orbit. <laughs> my, my sweet girls, they can, they can 
do so many things and they'll bat their eyes at me and I'm more than compassionate with them. But when my kids come to me with entitlement and a lack of thankfulness, unfortunately, that, that is a, uh, it's a grievous sin <laughs> to me. However, you know, do we not do the same thing to God when we have a sense of entitlement to God? When we're ungrateful and that's not, that gratefulness is not on our lips? So, may we therefore have this thankfulness in our hearts. And by the way, this is God's will for your life too. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So you want to know God's will for your life today? Stay away from sexual morality. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's his will for your life. That's his will for your life. And then finally here in Ephesians, we read of a final warning. Verse 5, Paul states, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so the final thing that we see here in the text today is a very firm and stern warning that those who fail to obey these commands will face God's judgment. It's a sure fact. It's going to happen. You can be sure of this. There's no, well, I got my grade on the curve. There's an assurance here on Paul's part that God being a just judge will bring right judgment. You know, if you read this in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, as we already did, what does Paul say as he goes through his list? When he says that don't be deceived, neither the sexually uh, immoral, nor the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. God's going to bring his just judgment. Hebrews 13, 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know, in the book of Ephesians, as we read there in the very beginning, and we learned that we, the church, as God's adopted children, we have obtained an inheritance because we were predestined to do so according to the purpose of his will. So, but dear friends, a continual life of unrepentant impurity in our sexual relations and in our speech is a possible indicator that we've never obtained that. Paul tells us to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. We need to do that. We need to ask ourselves this question. And so if you've obtained this inheritance and you can say, yes, I have obtained this inheritance, yet I struggle with this, well, you need to live like it. If you've obtained this inheritance, you need to live like it. And you need to repent. You need to flee these youthful lusts and passions and pursue righteousness as Paul exhorted Timothy to do. If you've not obtained it, if God has not granted you repentance yet, pray that he would. Repent. Do the same thing. Flee and pursue. Flee the things of filthy speech and pursue thankfulness. Flee sexual immorality and pursue purity and righteousness. And so as you take an honest look at your life, compared to God's standards, where do you see yourself? Do you see your sin. Because dear friends, we all have it here. Make no mistake. I'm not standing here in judgment over our congregation. I'm just speaking God's word. I, just like you, struggle with these same things. We all do. So do you see your sin? 
If you do, praise God because that is a measure of grace. But repent. Repent of these things. Repent of these things because that's where the gospel comes in. That's where the gospel comes in. Praise God for it. So, in conclusion today, in conclusion today, let me just reiterate Paul's message here. You know, throughout the past couple of weeks, I've been listening to Justin's sermons, and Justin's done a fantastic job of speaking of the what and the how. Uh, the sermon today may be wrapped up in the why. And the why, dear friends, once again, is that we would be blazing lights in the culture that is behind us, the back, dark backdrop that is behind us. May we shine bright. The why is God's glory. Why do we do these things? God's glory. That's why we do them. And so we may we pursue that. And by being sexually pure in what we think, say, and do, we're going to be a contrasting light in the culture that's around us. Make no mistake, you're going to stand out. You're going to be different. By being content and not coveting, we will no doubt stand out. I can promise you that. Because we live in a culture that says, more, more, more. You need more. And when you say that Jesus is enough, Jesus is all I need. And when you are truly content with that, and when you're truly content with Jesus, I promise you, you are going to stand out. By being pure in our speech, and what we say, when our speech is pure and filled with words of gentleness and kindness, and ultimately the gospel, I can promise you, you're going to stand out. So dear friends, if you are here today, and if you are a believer and you're a follower of Jesus, shine bright. Shine bright in the culture that is around us because Christ is in you. He is in you and he is shining in you. And may we trust what John tells us in John 1 when he says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It won't overcome it. It won't overcome it. So let's pray.